This is a crowd podcast. Welcome to the Fertility Podcast, where we aim to educate and empower you on your fertility journey, whatever stage you're at. I'm Natalie Silverman, a broadcaster and fertility coach, and I had my son after successful fertility treatment. And I'm Kate Davis, an independent fertility nurse consultant. We'll be your trusted guides, chatting each week with experts and people just like you to let you know you're not alone. Let's dive in. Welcome to another episode of the Fertility Podcast. We've just been having a right old chinwag, haven't we? We have. Good old catch up. Kate and I have this kind of off mic chin wag and then try to condense it when we're talking to you. It's been a it's been an interesting week and there's a couple of things that we wanted to, I suppose, just chat through with you. Mm. Um, because one of the things that we try to mirror in the podcast chat is things that we're sharing on our social media and enable you to continue the conversation. And if you've come to the podcast thinking, well, where were you for Brew It Too? Um, it didn't happen last week and I didn't make a big fuss about it, um, but it will be happening again. It's just that uh, it was something that the pair of us couldn't quite do in our schedules. I'm actually going to be on on set doing that thing with my fingers, exclamation marks, when Brew It Too is scheduled. So I'm hoping that I can do it. On set is not for me. It's for my um, soon-to-be star, possibly son, who is filming for a TV show, which I will tell you about when I'm allowed to. So just as a word yeah. of warning, it may well be you flying solo, Kate. How do you ah, feel about that? That's okay. No, flying solo is good because you've flown solo while I've been AWOL, so I'm quite happy to return the favour. Well, we'll keep you posted on our socials mm. where you know we like to update you and you can always follow us. I'm at Fertility Poddy on Insta and Twitter. And I'm at Your Fertility Journey on Instagram. And let's just talk about your post this week Um in particular, the one, there's a couple that I actually wanted to mention, but in particular, the one that you shared updating people about the vaccine, because it's such a contentious topic. And we've talked about it all the way through since the vaccine program has been running. And we know that there is a lot of concern for you trying to conceive because at the initial stages of the vaccine, there was guidance that you shouldn't have it if you were trying to conceive. And then the JVCI changed that, didn't they? Mm, they did. And that's normal process when any new medication is first being trialed is it's obviously being trialed it has to go through all of the rigmarole that it goes through and they obviously where they can they look at any risk to any aspect of health and and clearly you know we didn't have that luxury of of waiting so initially the first advice was until we gather more data and no more then to delay and very quickly luckily that changed when there was more data and more knowledge around the vaccine, which was a relief. And then women who are trying to conceive are advised, obviously, to have the vaccine. And women who are pregnant can also have the vaccine. And I wanted to share the most recent update from both the British Fertility Society and ARCS, which is the Association of Reproductive and Clinical Scientists, because it had some really good data in it, and particularly around pregnancy, in the fact that they've been following up over 130,000 pregnant women in the USA and Scotland. And the research studies found that there was no safety concerns, which I think is great news and hopefully really reassuring for women who are pregnant and thinking about whether they should go and get their vaccine. So that's good news. If you're listening to this podcast in the future, we're speaking in July 2021, just to kind of timestamp this data because it, it will be ever changing yeah. and the reason that we wanted to talk about it because we've been sharing in in our different social media platforms is just 
due to some of the comments that have been coming in in response to it. And you'll know if you've been following the podcast that we're always keen to share evidence-based facts. We don't just chuck stuff out there. We want to give you the facts. And Kate just highlighted there the stats that we have to date, yet there still was um, a lot of resistance mm. to the post. There was a lot of comments saying that this still wasn't kind of enough. Do you want to just explain a bit of some of the concern that was shared yeah. and, and, and actually what you think about it? Because I know it's something that um, you feel very strongly about. Well, I feel very strongly about giving the right information and getting rid of misinformation yeah. and scaremongering. And I was really saddened to see that on that post, not only was I massively trolled with DMs as well, which is inexcusable you know and I think I did mention at one point please don't shoot the messenger I'm providing this information that I see is my role to do that and I want to do that accurately but also that there were a lot of inaccurate negative comments it was enlightening for me actually because I think you know we can all do as much as we possibly can but there are still going to be the people that will want to look for reasons why it's not okay. And I understand that. I absolutely understand that, that it's incredibly anxiety provoking for any woman, either trying to conceive or pregnant. I absolutely get that. But unfortunately, all of these people are relying on the misinformation to inform their choices. And that's wrong and sad and incorrect. And that's why I think we're trying to change that. Just highlight a few of the incorrect claims that people were saying, because there was quite a few comments about the vaccine's impact on menstrual cycles. And we've talked about this before, yeah. that vaccines in general do upset anything. A cycle. Yeah. I mean, I know there's, there's been a lot in the media and, and I do believe there are some research studies looking into the menstrual cycle impact. And that's absolutely right to do because any medication, any vaccine, any, I mean, this is how ridiculous it is really, any medication, any vaccine, um, any changes to your routine, any stress, any traveling, all of those things can impact on your menstrual cycle. So I think we don't really know when sudden as a sudden disturbance to a menstrual cycle, what might necessarily be the cause of it. And it could be coincidental. We don't know. And that's why they're doing some investigation to it, which is absolutely the right thing to say. What is really important is those disturbances are not likely to impact on your fertility. Because as far as we're aware, they're not stopping you ovulate. And if you're ovulating, that's great. That's what we need to be able to conceive. That was one of them. The other one was in relation to where was the evidence for women who were pregnant ending up in ITU. And I was, unfortunately, when I was initially asked for this evidence, I didn't, I was busy working it, wasn't able to provide it, but I later found it. And the RCOG state really clearly that sadly, one in 10 women, pregnant women with COVID end up in ITU, which took me absolutely by surprise. I think that's a staggering and frightening amount if that's not enough to go and get your vaccine, I don't know what is, to be honest. Mm. And can we put some links sure. to that in the show notes if yeah. people want to read up more? Because we know that we can only say so much and you'll make your own decisions. All we can do is give you the evidence. Absolutely. Yeah, we've got to give the right information and the correct information. And, uh, you know, whilst, yes, of course, we still don't have all the evidence that we want, but when the bodies, the professional bodies, the British Fertility Society, um, ARCS, JCVI, when all the people that know what they're talking about are giving us this information, that's what we have to listen to, not the scaremongers and the misinformation. Or listen to the scaremongers and the misinformation, but also listen to the proper stuff and then make your informed decision. It is your choice, absolutely your choice. But please look at both angles. Yeah, exactly. And breathe. 
I know. So I'm really passionate about it. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> There's no need to apologise. And if you have questions to ask about it, of course, come and ask Kate. Uh, you can ask me and I'll forward them to Kate. Um, and we will always be looking to get the experts that we have uh, at our disposal. Yeah. Uh, to, to, to help as well and it's something that you know we've talked to over and over again with Dr James Nicopoulos who is our resident expert. James is somebody who's going to be featuring in today's episode because we're yeah. going to move on and explain what's going on because if you've been following the podcast since we relaunched in Feb you'll know that we've been kind of mapping out your journey and we are heading into the fertility clinic and this episode is called what to expect in IVF and that is a big question. It's a big question that we've tried to answer in a concise way without this episode being ours. And so what you're going to hear first up is James explaining what you can expect when basically you first go to a clinic. So he talks about some of the key investigations, about scans, about if you've already had tests, say, in the last six months, whether or not they'll be valid, what needs to be repeated. So have a listen to him and then we'll be back with you. Within the NHS and the private sector, increasingly the ideal scenario is everything everything is done almost as a one-stop shop in terms of getting as much information as we can to identify the cause of, of any problem um, and try and come up with treatment options as soon as possible rather than these really frustrating multiple visits um, where you come in have a test go away um, get the results a few months later and that is a horrible um, horrible slow process so I think the initial referral inevitably should be for a series of two or three diagnostic tests and thereafter you see a consultant with the results of those tests and you come up with a with, with a plan i think that that should be the pathway in, in most clinics now what information do you think they should bring with them when they come for a clinic appointment what information are you going to be asking of them well i think that again most clinics will have some sort of questionnaire that that, that, that couples will complete beforehand and the key uh, bits of information are previous history in terms of how long people have been trying um, any previous pregnancies and the outcomes um, thereafter as much information as they can give about their menstrual history how regular their cycles are um, and also any other factors be it gynecological be it surgical be it medical that may help us um, ascertain which direction to go in in terms of investigations also it's important that we identify any other risk factors in terms of uh, increased risk complications perhaps during treatment uh, or perhaps increased risks of any complications during pregnancy that we need to mitigate and make sure we're aware of. And I think any investigation is done anywhere else, um, because you don't always have to repeat things when you go to a clinic if you've done it somewhere else. Um, and again, if you have had treatment somewhere else and you happen to be going to a new clinic, bring as much information from your old clinic as possible. And time frame wise if people have been delayed because of what's gone on, or maybe they themselves have been unwell, um, what would you say in terms of when they might have previously had tests and then they're bringing those? What should they expect? The key investigations that any clinic will need to really get a good idea of where we are are the markers of egg reserve. So ideally, um, a transvaginal scan with an assessment of the ovaries, uh, an AMH blood test. And if you've had those within the last six months, they're not going to have significantly changed. So they'll still be valid. Similarly, a semen analysis within the last six months, um, unless there was a significant abnormality, we wouldn't need to repeat that. Um, if there if there was an abnormality previously, then we may repeat it to see if there's been any significant change. But those are the three keys: a scan, the AMH blood test, um, and also the semen analysis. 
Thereafter, the actual tests themselves you need for IVF, things like HIV, Hep B, Hep C, th those will be as per the regulator. So within three months of first treatment and every two years thereafter. So when you're talking about tests, um, obviously we see quite a lot of ladies who can be quite informed. They might want to do some investigations themselves before going to a clinic. And some of those investigations might be that they look for home blood testing. Do you accept those results or do you require them to redo those in the clinic? Oh, that's a really good question. I've never been asked that before. Ah, um, good. There you go. Um, I think increasingly especially with COVID, um, more and more people are trying to get those blood tests done. Um, I think the honest answer is it all depends where they've done them and who they've done them through um, and looking at what level of quality control um, those labs have got. Um, so I think as long as, as long as I can see where they've come from and try and then ascertain how accurate those tests are, um, there's no reason why we'd need to repeat them again. Um, but it's just getting that information. I think simple things like full blood count, you know, thyroid function, all those things, uh, you know, they should be very accurate. How they do the markers of egg reserve like AMH, as long as they're using the one accepted test in terms of methodology for doing that, there's no reason why we shouldn't accept it. It's our job to try and make things as, as easy as possible. This is a hard enough process without adding extra barriers. One question I was asked the other day of patients who are coming to see you at the Lister actually they asked me how frequently they can expect to see the same doctor you know they're asking specifically about the Lister I couldn't really answer it so I said but don't worry I know a man who can yeah <laughs> I think it's again it's a really good question um and I think that one of the good things about the way we work at the Lister as an example I think most clinics are the same is that we do work as a team um partly because we have to and partly because frankly you know tomorrow we have our um, you know, we do talk to each other more than every two weeks, but we have our fortnightly doctor's meeting um, where we sit down and, and brainstorm um, and 12 experienced clinicians looking at a complicated case, um, perhaps in a couple that haven't had the success we'd expect, um, is really, really useful because, you know, we get ideas off each other um, and things that perhaps we haven't tried or, or thought of. So I think that's a really valuable multidisciplinary meeting that we have. If you come and see us, you will have a point person. So if somebody comes to see me, I'm the person in charge of their care. They'll have direct access to me um, by email. Any questions throughout the process the nurses have, they come to me. Any questions a, a couple has, if they're not happy with anything, they come to me. So I'm in charge of their overall care. But obviously, you know, an individual or a couple's eggs and embryos are ready when they're ready. So that there can't be any guarantee that I'll, put, I'll, I'll be doing their egg collection on the transfer because obviously... Um, I may have a clinic that day or or um, not be in that day. So they will meet other people um, throughout the process. And I'll, and I'll tell you what I tell um, couples when I see them. A any clinic or any individual who can guarantee that they will do everything for you, honestly, is doing it at a time that suits them and not suits your eggs and your embryos. Because I can't know um, if the couple, like, if your couple that, that are going to see me's embryos are going to be ready for transfer on a Sunday or a Monday or a Tuesday, and I'd never be able to book a clinic in. So, you know, I'm there five days a week, so I'm always accessible. And often if somebody for a particular reason wants me to do something, we can usually squeeze it in before my clinic starts. But they have continuity with me, but they will meet other people through the process. I think it's so good to spell it out like that and, and for people to really understand and, and be realistic about it because we do know it's so time sensitive with treatment and different protocols and people react. Yeah, and for example, if there were 10 doctors, we, you know, we all do one egg collection list a week one transfer list a week, one scan doctor on call a, a week. Um, and that's what we do on that particular day. So we can actually put the clinics in the rest of the time so we can see patients. So it's just getting that balance right of 
trying to maximise continuity but being realistic. One of the other things that we are hoping to, to, to do is bring the questions that we're being asked to you, James. And whilst we're talking about treatment, something that I've seen quite a lot in the closed Facebook group for the Fertility Podcast is conversations about people having to delay their transfer because they've overstimulated, they've got high estrogen issues and there's risk of OHSS. And I've actually seen this more recently than I've ever seen. Um, so I'm interested into whether there might be any reason yeah. for that or whether it's just a bizarre kind of coincidence but also those conversations about the higher success rates about frozen embryo transfers that other patients were, were, were sharing their experiences to this particular person I just wondered about your thoughts on that I'm hoping it is just a, a strange aberration because we've got so many more tools in our armory now to minimize the hyperstimulation risk I think every study anywhere in the world has shown the more eggs you get the better the outcome and and I'm very rarely extreme uh, about anything but i think anybody who says anything different is fundamentally wrong you know if you get three eggs you've got a better chance of getting one if you've got four eggs you've got a better chance of getting two so if you can get more than one egg and always try and we should be reserving things like natural cycle for people who can only produce one because otherwise you are affecting their outcome and we can do that now we can get as many eggs as we can within reason success rate tends to plateau at 15 to 20 very very safely now because we've got the protocols in place that can minimize that the trigger injections that mature eggs, which is what can also kick off hyperstimulation, we now have alternatives that virtually eliminate hyperstimulation risk. The only thing I can think of at the moment is it may be that some clinics very, very reasonably are being uber, uber cautious about freezing because, again, they want to almost, even if there's a tiny, tiny risk of hyperstimulation, they don't want to put that burden on the NHS and, and, and couples at the moment um, within this crazy world of ours. So it may, it may be that, but as I say, the risk of hyperstimulation should be virtually zero now. In terms of freezing, we all got really excited four or five years ago when some studies began to suggest that frozen embryos do as well as fresh, if not better. A couple of those studies, or one in particular, had the, was withdrawn because the data was a little bit flawed. Most of the studies now in the big systematic reviews suggest frozen embryos do as well as fresh. I'm not convinced they do better, but you know, if you need to freeze embryos, for whatever reason, hyperstimulation, high progesterone levels, we find a polyp, then you can be reassured that the success rate when you use those embryos appears to be as good as uh, as fresh. Okay. My, my instinct and what I say to people is that I'm not seeing convincing data that frozen is better than fresh. And if you choose to freeze for no reason and you've got this glorious embryo and it happens to be in one of the two or three percent that doesn't come through the freezing process, you'll be really kicking yourself for freezing it. So, so if you, if you need to freeze, definitely do it. Be reassured. But if you don't, I'm not convinced it's the right thing to do for no reason. So that's a kind of taster of your first visit to the clinic. And Kate, you shared a, a great post on your Instagram about questions to ask at your first IVF appointment. Um, do you want to mention some of them? And we mm. will put a link in the show notes to that post because I know it had great response and it was a really concise list and people were like, taking that. Thank you. I Save that. Thank you. I know it's the most saved post I think I've had. Um, yeah, it was really popular. So some of the questions, like one I think which is really good when you're thinking about how IVF can be in, individualized for you is how do you decide what treatment is best for me? So that's a great question to ask. Obviously, really important to ask about success rates, but really you're going to be wanting to know live birth rate as opposed to successful IVF cycles or both, but definitely your consideration needs to be live birth rate. How do you tailor IVF treatment for each patient? Kind of a bit similar really to the first one. What are the health risks of IVF, particularly if you're having any IVF add-ons? That's a really good one to ask so that you can be massively informed there are 22 questions there 
So there's quite a lot of information. Like I've said, I'll put the link in the show notes to Kate's post that if you don't know how to save a post on Instagram, it's dead easy. It's just like the little flag, um, like sign on the far right. They're like little, is that a flag you'd say? It's like a... It's like a bookmark. Like a medieval. Yeah, like a medieval bookmark Yeah, I accidentally press it sometimes. (laughs) It's so easy to accidentally press, isn't it? Then I save stuff I don't want. But then I can never find where I've saved them. So that's something I need to learn. We'll talk about that another time. Yeah. Okay. We're going to rejoin James Nicopolis now because we asked James what to expect in IVF and he's going to talk about the treatment and explain what is going to be happening. We want to just highlight we are all so different. And even you're here when we first asked him the question, he was like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a big question. But this is just to give you more of an idea because like, I know when I found out I was having to have fertility treatment, my best mate had had it. So... I I had an idea of what it was and sadly all too often that might well be your experience that someone you know and can ask has had it however if you're coming into this without any idea then this hopefully is a really good overview so once again we are joined by our resident expert Dr James Nicopoulos who we've brought together the three of us we're all rather warm everybody's a bit glowing I'm in not in my booth because it's too hot James has got heat rash Kate is 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 positively glowing so we're going to be we're going to be concise with this chat. We're, we're speaking that week in July where we were all saying this weather's amazing, but it's so hot. And we want to just really kind of explain what to expect when it comes to an IVF cycle. You're going to be hearing some from some listeners as far as their feelings. And in, in upcoming episodes, we're going to be talking about the drugs teach. So when you have to have your injections, and we're also going to be talking about um, egg collection and embryo transfer. So this episode, we've asked James to try and quite concisely, remember everybody is different and everybody's protocols are different. And so this is a conversation for you to have with your clinician when you are at the fertility clinic. But if you're just thinking, what the heck is it all about? Rather than asking Dr. Google, Ask Dr. James. Oh, I like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think, as you said, the, the key is the, the workup. Uh, and once you've got to that point and you've seen the nurses, they've prepared you, you've got everything you need, obviously the next step is getting cracking. And the best way of looking at it is um, clearly the whole reason why IVF improves your chance of getting pregnant, as well as overcoming whatever specific problem you have, is that we're stimulating the ovaries to produce or to grow more of the follicles than would normally grow. So in in any given normal cycle, you've got a gaggle of, say, 10 follicles or more, one of which ends up growing. The rest literally don't do very much, wither away and die. The whole process starts again next month. So with IVF, what we're doing is we're giving you the FSH hormone you produce naturally at much higher doses. Frustratingly, the only way we can do that is is a daily injection. So we give you one injection every day, and on average, that's around 12 to 14 days worth of injections. So the same time it normally takes one egg to grow, that's the normal time scale it takes the however many we, we, um, we're trying to get to grow. So the stimulation phase in almost every cycle, in almost every protocol starts just after your period. So normally you'll get a period, you'll call for a scan, or you'll start the medication. And for those two weeks, you're taking one injection every night to make the eggs grow. And over the course of those two weeks, you're probably having anything between three, maybe five or six scans to watch the follicles grow, see when you're ready for the egg collection. Depending on what clinic you're at, you may well also have blood tests during those scans because some clinics use blood tests and the hormone levels to help them decide whether to adjust the dose or not, um, and also help them decide when you're ready for egg collection. Now, 
if we just give you the injections to make the eggs grow and nothing else, the, the brain will do what it's every month, realize you've got these lovely eggs growing and you'll ovulate and you'll release the eggs. We don't want you to release the eggs. We want to collect them before you release them. So that's when that second medication um, is used. And that's where you hear lots of people talking about different kinds of protocols, short, long, flare. And the main difference between those protocols is what kind of drug that we use and when we give it to stop you releasing those eggs. So in a short protocol, we start the injections to make the eggs grow. And only when the eggs start to grow do we give you um, a second injection for the last few days that works really quickly to stop you ovulating. In a classic long protocol, you take a nasal spray um, or sometimes an injectable for a week or so before your period starts that switches your system off in advance. So actually, um, a long and a short protocol, the actual nitty gritty from period to egg collection is exactly the same two week period roughly. The only difference is whether you take a little nasal spray just before or an injectable halfway through. Um, so what you, what you really should expect is around two, two weeks of quite intensive monitoring um, with four or five scans and blood tests. And, and for most people during that time, you know, your estrogen levels go up. Estrogen tends to be a pretty happy hormone, tends to make women feel relatively good. It's often the, the later stage post-embryo transfer with the hormones you take there that make you feel a little bit grotty. Um, and the hardest thing in those two weeks really is the logistics, is fitting in and around life running in and out of work into a clinic, spending a couple of hours perhaps every few days there. And often it's those logistics that become the most stressful in those two weeks. Yeah, I think that was really, really well explained from an overview point of view, because the point of this episode isn't to tell anybody what they what is going to happen to them in, yeah. in the literal sense. It's to give them an idea, because what we're trying to do for anybody who is listening to this, having just found out that they're, going to have to go to a clinic to try and get a bit more understanding I mean do you feel James that the people that come to see you in the early stages are pretty clued up do you do you, do you often get someone who's got absolutely no idea what to expect rarely nowadays um, I, think, yeah. I think the the extremes I think that most people um, have a little bit of information um, most people have done a little bit of research um, so I've got an idea of how a, a cycle works. Um, a very, very small percentage just come in to have a chat, make sure the fertility is okay without really any idea of what the potential options are. And you do get a small proportion of people who have read everything from back to front, inside out, um, and you have to slightly... Um, Manage those expectations. Yeah, but almost reverse some of the stuff that they've learned because often it's not accurate. Um, or it's not realistic so it's just it's just disentangling some of that is there something that you always say to people when you're having these early conversations I've probably got some really frustrating lines that I, that I, I don't even realize I say to everybody um, I, I think what I tend to do with everybody is give them is give them all the options in terms of the success rates of doing nothing trying naturally um, to compare with the success rates of, say, RUI, IVF, egg donation. So people have a really good overview of, of, of how any treatment that we're going to potentially do will improve the outcome. I try and ensure people aren't too, um, what's the word? They don't focus too much on stuff that really doesn't matter or they really can't do much about. Like 
Like what? Give an example. I think some people are, you know, very anxious about stress. And I tend to say, don't be stressed about being stressed. Um, because I think the key here is that people don't beat themselves up. If, if IVF or whatever it may be doesn't work, it's not going to be anything that you've done. And it's really important to make sure people aren't climbing the ceilings and worrying about things that they can't do anything about. And all the current research shows that the, that stress doesn't impact on your fertility. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't think many people know that because we're they're so everyone's you're told aren't you oh you know if you stress that's just going to make it worse and I think there's so much guilt that's then put on women and couples if they're concerned that that they're they shouldn't be stressing well of course you're going to stress when you're going through an IVF cycle it's a stressful life event but it's not going to impact on your fertility absolutely and there's often other life events that are coexist with fertility treatment that we all have to deal with and it's about making sure they don't beat themselves up ask the expert 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 this person has said they've had recurrent miscarriages and their consultant has recommended five milligrams of folic acid and pregnant care they haven't had a high bmi or any other illnesses have you heard this before she says she's been taking it for a year whilst trying to conceive and she says that she's never heard others take it for recurrent miscarriage and is panicked um no is the answer i think in the absence of any good reason i don't think it's something that i would normally recommend um i would have expected them to have had the appropriate tests done the clotting tests, the anatomical tests uh, the hormonal tests um you know some people will check for the mthfr enzyme mutation um, and in those people the way you manage folic acid isn't quite as good as it should be so you need high doses of more more of a natural methylfolate um, kind of folic acid. But I, we wouldn't normally just give high dose folic acid for a current No, it seems a bizarre thing to be told to do, doesn't it? Um, unless unless there's a piece of research that's come out that I don't know about, but it's not something that I've seen. I mean, it's obviously it's, it's with high BMI and if there's a family history yeah. of neurotube defect. Yeah. yeah. Or if you're on certain kinds of medication, etc. Yeah. Thank you. We'll pass that on. Ask the expert. 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 So that's it in a nutshell. Um, and and as we always say, you know, just don't be afraid to ask questions with, with any of this. We are going to be talking over the coming weeks about the drugs teach when it comes to injections and also explaining more about egg collection and embryo transfer. So don't worry if you're thinking, well, they didn't mention that. We purposely didn't because we want to give it more detail. Interesting, obviously, the whole stress focus because it's very hard to not get stressed during it because it, if you've never done it before, it is daunting and it is overwhelming. And And, and I talk about the importance of knowing how to manage your stress because you can't just assume that you won't get stressed absolutely and I think everyone worries about stress don't they and um we know that being stressed is not a nice place to be and obviously we talked there about the research and I hope that everyone finds that reassuring that actually the reason the current research shows that there is no link to uh being stressed and having an impact on your fertility which I hope when we when people hear that, then they immediately go, oh, OK. So it takes some of that that stress away. But certainly that's the most recent evidence from Professor Jackie Bovine, who's a, um, a researcher in Cardiff University, and she's dedicated all her career to researching this topic. So definitely worth looking at some of her stuff to find out a bit more. But it, it, I think it's really reassuring to know that. But like I said, it's not a great place to be. So you still need to have the strategies in place to manage your stress. Otherwise, it just makes the whole process so much harder for you. And again, we'll put a link in if we've got a link to Jackie's research, just if you like a research paper, as we know lots of you do. And I think it's also good when it comes to stress 
if you've maybe had a failed cycle and maybe you were stressed and maybe you've been blaming yourself for being stressed, hearing what Kate has just said, because that's not going to do you any favours moving forward, the whole blame game. Now, one of the things that we thought would be really useful as well would be to share your thoughts on what to expect in IVF. And it's something that we've been doing um, and a new thing that we're, we're kind of doing more of is asking for you to, to share your thoughts. You're going to hear from three listeners and they've all decided to give their own experiences. You've got Annabelle, Katrina and Kathy. And we're going to just play them all back to back for you to have a listen to three quite different accounts of what to expect. Hello, my name's Katrina. I've been going through fertility treatment for quite a few years now. My main thing was worry and stress. So it's good to find some coping strategies that work for you. I found a daily diary to write about my feelings and thoughts and what was going on in my treatment. Good. And also I found an app called MediIVF. Parts of this were free, but parts you did have to pay for. The two-week wait I found quite hard. It's good to keep busy. Every little twinge, you worry something's wrong. You will most likely feel hormonal, emotional. Your boobs may get sore. You may get cross with your partner, but hopefully they'll understand. So anyone going to go through their IVF soon, I just want to wish you all good luck and hope it all goes well and you get a positive outcome. So I'm Annabelle, I'm 30, nearly 31. I've been through two rounds of IVF, both with different successes. At 25, I was expecting to get pregnant first time. And after a double transfer in the September, I found out that I wasn't pregnant. And then another double transfer in the December, we, we were very lucky to have gotten pregnant with our daughter. With that round of IVF, I think one of the things that I'd like to have been told is to manage my expectations. I thought being young, fit and healthy with a male factor side of infertility, that it would work and that we'd have no problem at all and I think that was a big thing for us and managing our expectations that it might not work it might do but it might not on a flip side of this we went into IVF again five years after our first round and I expected it to not work. I was very much on, well, we didn't have the success in the first round, so I'm five years older, I'm a couple of stone heavier, it's not going to be successful. And I think one of the big things for us was preparing ourselves for it to work. You get very, very guarded in IVF and it's very difficult to let that guard down. And I think one of the things that I really struggled to to come to terms with was the fact that I was pregnant and it could work we're very very lucky that we now have another little boy in our life we have a little girl and a little boy and we have been lucky but it's all about managing expectations for us and making sure that we stayed as sane as we could do through the process for us we have a very sadistic sense of humor around it because that helps us get through it but as a couple, we've always maintained the idea that we've gone into this together and we need to come out of it together. In terms of the actual IVF process itself, I think one of the big things for us was to make sure that we knew the steps. But this time around, I was very, the nurses were very, very clear with me to take it one step at a time, to not get ahead of myself and just focus on what is being asked of me at that moment in time instead of trying to get hung up on, oh, I've got to do these injections then or then those injections then. And 
putting dates on things that you ultimately can't put a date on. Um, everything has got to be very, very flexible because it works on what your body's doing and how your body's responding. So I think one of the big things is making sure that you, you are quite flexible in your approach to things. Obviously, have a rough idea of what the process is so you, you're quite prepared for that. But to just be guided by the clinic, expectations of the clinic, make sure that you're open and honest with them tell them if you're not happy ask them questions because that's one of the big things that you can go through the whole process having a really minor worry and it could be something completely irrelevant or something that won't ever happen i remember watching videos of on youtube before my first cycle because there wasn't access to all these fantastic pages that we've got now regarding IVF and thinking that they were going to strap me to a bed for an egg collection, which was completely not the case at all. So I think big, big thing is ask questions, but be realistic, be focused on the end goal, because that ultimately gets you through the process. Take each day as it comes and obviously reach out if you need the support, because there's so many people out there who can and will support you. What to expect from IVF? Number one, to wait. I think waiting is worse than treatment. At least when you're doing treatment, you feel like you're achieving something. Whether you're waiting for an initial appointment or for a test, for test results, for your scans, for medications, for treatment, for callback, for whenever your clinic opens or in the two week wait, it all sucks. We were lucky enough to be able to afford private for one cycle, but even with private, there can be a substantial wait. We were originally told three months, which kept getting extended and extended and extended to seven months. So just be prepared to wait. And the pandemic has made everything that much harder. Number two, expect sympathy, but not always empathy. This is a hard one to explain. Um, no matter how open you are with what's going on, don't always expect the responses you want. I've had quite a few insensitive comments, most of which comes from ignorance, which is nobody's fault. And sometimes people are going to say things that do hurt. And whenever it is something from ignorance, you know, it, you must forgive people just and educate because it makes it that much easier for you and for them. However, when I was originally navigating my first few months and getting bad result after bad result, I began to open my mind to other avenues of getting that sacred child. I made the mistake of spitballing to a couple of single friends about possible donor options, maybe even a sibling. I immediately received responses of disgust and how disturbing that an option would be. I was honestly so, so shocked, especially since the two of them would consider themselves open-minded. So let's just say they're on an information diet. But the majority of responses I've got are support or positivity anyway so please don't worry number three expect questions i definitely think being open for us was our best option a side effect of this however is even more questions so have your answers ready i find podcasts facebook groups online forums invaluable for getting information especially through all that waiting the more i knew the less scared i was and the better i could answer all of these questions so um for most people, they know nothing about IVF, so expect to give free biology lessons over and over and over again. One last thing, just because you're open does not mean you always have to give the update to the question whenever it is asked. So look after yourself first. The playing field is always changing when doing IVF and some days it's hard to answer those questions. 
especially if you just received bad news. The last thing you want to do on those days is talk about bad news you've received, but also explain why that's bad news, how it affects your treatment, how it affects your outcomes. So look after yourself first. And if you are starting IVF, in the middle of IVF, or having a hard time, just good luck. You're not alone. And uh, thanks to Natalie for everything she does. I loved all three and I hope you found them useful too. They're all so different, weren't they? They were. And I love, like you say, I love them all. And I was furiously making some notes as I was listening to them. They're great. And, you know, some of the things like becoming, you become an expert waiting, you know, so it's such a waiting game and to have that awareness that actually you are, it's not going to be quick. Even when you start the process, it's still not going to be quick. There's so many twists and turns and so much waiting. You become an expert at waiting. Um, I love that. better at being patient, which is something that I wasn't before going into um, treatment and yeah, yeah definitely learned we will be doing an episode on the two-week wait so if you are wanting to share your experiences of how you coped in the two-week wait then you can let us know in a couple of ways you can email info at the fertility podcast you can come and join the closed facebook group which is called the fertility podcast and let us know there it'd be lovely to have you there or you can tell us on our socials at fertility Poddy. and i'm at your fertility journey So like I say, we're moving through this whole experience of being in clinic. Next week, we're going to be hearing from Kate P, who is one of Kate D's uh, nurses. Kate talks you through the drugs teach and she's brilliant. I also confess something that happened during my treatment, which I never thought I'd share on the podcast, but I feel like... Oh, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, We're we're old enough friends for... It wasn't Brill at the time. Um, (laughs) We're old enough friends for me to get pretty down and dirty in what I'm sharing. So literally make sure you subscribe to the Fertility Podcast wherever you get your podcast. Thank you as always for listening. And until the next time, 